This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I am your host for today's interview. And I'm speaking with Lindsay Claire Smith. Dr. Smith, is Professor of English and American Indian Studies at Oklahoma State University and is the author of the new book, Urban Homelands, Writing the Native City from Oklahoma, which came out with the University of Nebraska Press earlier this year in 2023. Welcome to the New Books Network, Lindsay. Good to have you here today. Thank you so much. I'm excited for the conversation. Why don't we start, as we always do here on the show, by just hearing a little bit about who you are. Can you tell us a little about your background? And what I'm especially interested in is how you became interested in literature, in indigenous studies, and in just kind of storytelling in general. Sure. Well, I grew up um, here in Tulsa, and I was the child of two English teachers. And I'm very fortunate because both of them sort of went off book and from a young age were really sharing with me a lot of just wonderfully rich examples of Oklahoma literature, including a lot of just amazing indigenous writers such as in Scott Mamaday, Jory Harjo. Um, so I really kind of, I believe, had, you know, English instruction in my blood, as it were. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I really grew up just, you know, with this rich um, environment of reading and sharing, but especially about, um, you know, this this literary tradition here where we're from. And um, growing up, I spent a lot of time going back and forth between Tulsa and Ada, Oklahoma, which is where both my parents are from. and Ada is the capital of the Chickasaw Nation. And so, though I am not a tribal citizen, I'm not really able to speak to the experience of being a tribal community member. Um, I have had just such a um, a really uh, lucky experience of just being, you know, 
around a lot of different um, Native community members and seeing how rich and intertribal um, Oklahoma really is. And so um, my, my dad's family does have some Chickasaw ancestry, though we're not tribal citizens. So um, I've just had a long um, fascination, scholarly interest, but also personal interest in just the culture of Oklahoma, the amazing storytellers and um, writers here. And so uh, when I um, finished up college, I went to Hendricks College, and then um, I was thinking I wanted to study English in graduate school. Um, I ended up sort of getting a little bit nervous about exactly what I wanted to study. And so I took a gap year and I worked in Indian education in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And during that time, I had a mentor, Jerry Brokaw, who really shared my interest in um, reading and literature. She was a former journalist herself. And through that year of working in that program, I really became convinced that I wanted to pursue Indigenous studies more. And so then I went to UNC Chapel Hill and pursued that interest and just happened to have a great opportunity to come back home and teach at Oklahoma State. And so, um, so yeah, that's kind of my story, how I came to what I do now and my interest in this, this topic. And what path did you take to this book in particular? How'd you land on, on this particular topic that we're going to be talking about today? Well, um, it was a long process. <laughs> I um, probably just because of my experience, you know, growing up in Tulsa with a lot of different, um, you know, classmates and friends from different tribal nations, and also just my experience going back and forth to Ada. Um, I think I've always had that interest in um, sort of urban Indian cultures and experiences. Um, but I think it took me a good while to settle on really uh, studying this in Oklahoma more. And um, I think originally I was so um, fascinated by a lot of writers at the time who were getting so much attention. I mean, really when I started my career as a professor, everyone was teaching and talking about Sherman Alexie all the time. And um, so I was kind of looking at urban writers, you know, across sort of a national and international stage, but I had a mentor at OSU who was like, um, why aren't you writing about Oklahoma? Isn't that kind of what you know about and have experienced? And I thought, well, you know, yeah, you're right. So I started up with a much broader project um, related to urban indigenous studies that sort of came around to, well, you know, what do I have to say about Oklahoma? Because I didn't really see a lot of scholarship um, that really, um, explored in more depth what the experience of um, urbanization, you know, has been like in this former Indian territory. So um, started really reading and noticing more um, that topic relative to, to Oklahoma writers and started to notice. I couldn't really, um, I couldn't avoid the way in which I saw these connections across these connected regions, um, the South and, and the Southwest. So it took me a lot of time of additional reading and thinking and discussing to really come around to the focus of this book. 
So to get us started thinking about some of the themes uh, that we're going to be getting into more detail today, I'm curious. So I'm a, I'm a historian by, by training, um, and I think a lot about stories as well as a historian, but in so, so, some, something of a different context, right? So we both think about stories, but in kind of different ways. And I'm curious what you see as the connection between art and storytelling and literature and history. In particular, I'm curious what you see as the, the, the connections between art and the histories that people tell about places. Yeah, that's such a that's such a good question. I'm so interested in that. I think for many indigenous folks, art is a way of engaging with history on their own terms and in their own ways, especially when for so long academic studies and histories um, have not given a full picture of Native uh, histories, um, though I see that changing in some exciting ways heading into the future. But um, yeah, I think that uh, art tells tells history as well, but sometimes it's uh, more imaginative and more open to possibilities. Um, and, you know, similarly with, with different forms, you know, in storytelling, and I know growing up, I heard my you know, elders telling me so many different experiences of our family, where they lived before, how they got to Southern Oklahoma. And that was a kind of history, though it's not something I ever read about, you know, in a formal setting or formal venue. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of fluidity there and there's a lot of way to express and engage with history, but in different forms. One of the other big themes in this book is uh, mobility, and even more broadly than that, is is connection and connections between places. And in the book, you draw connections between uh, uh, three cities, between Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, New Orleans, Louisiana, and Santa Fe, New Mexico. Why these three cities? And what are some of the forms that these connections take? We'll go more in depth into these cities in a little bit. But just to kind of get us started, why did you pick these three? What kind of connections are we talking about here? Well, this is a key part of my book, but it's also been one of the most challenging parts to research, to sort of walk through and consider. Um, both New Orleans and Santa Fe were such important seats of empire for both France and Spain and eventually for American interests as well. And so, of course, Indian Territory um, is right in the middle. So there are these trading routes, both indigenous trading routes and settler routes crossing you know, Indian Territory, bringing a tremendous amount of activity um, in trade, economics, you know, cultural um you know, cultural meeting points. And so um, there's that historical connection, um, but there are also a lot of ways in which this moving back and forth, these connections, these routes, this, um, this meet, these meeting places were um, sites of cultural influence as well. So we see a lot of writers um, kind of bringing up these connections in their, in their work. But I think this is also an important part of sort of our regional identity here in the former Indian Territory. So um, at the same time that, um, especially in Southern Oklahoma, it feels so very Southern, um, there's also ways in which Oklahoma sort of is Western as well. And I really have come around to thinking that it has to do with these connections to multiple regions, not necessarily being in one region. 
And it's one of the reasons why we always joke about, you know, we don't really know exactly what Oklahoma is. <laughs> is it the South? Is it the Midwest? Is it the West? I always sort of dispute <laughs> when people try to pick one, but I think it's because we are connected to these different regions for historical and cultural reasons. Um, when I teach the American West in, in my own classes, um, I often will have students kind of like color in on a map where they think the West is. And Oklahoma is one of those places that always kind of gives them trouble, right? Which, yeah. which region do I, do, I, do I slot this place into? So, um, you know, I have, I have many uh, generations of undergrads that would hear you say that and would feel very vindicated, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we don't have time, unfortunately, as much as I'd love to, to go into the deep histories of all of these cities. And a lot of this book is also about more sort of contemporary themes as well. But could you very briefly um, sketch an outline of the sort of indigenous histories of these these three places? How is each one an indigenous city historically? Well, yeah, I don't have enough time, but I'll do my best in the space I have. It's a, it's, it's a big question to ask, I know. <laughs> yes. So um, when we think about New Orleans, I mean, one of, the, one of the biggest things is that, you know, of course, there are a lot of indigenous, there are a lot of nations that are indigenous to that area, um, whether it's Homa people, you know, many different indigenous nations, um, they're in that area, and that's their ancestral homeland. Um at the same time, because of this, you know, experience of trade, lots of different tribes from the South were making their way to and through New Orleans. And then, of course, during forced removal, some of those Southern, southern tribes also came through New Orleans and crossed the Mississippi. Um, and so then, um, you know, so that creates this really rich and interesting intertribal legacy and history in New Orleans that um, I think could really use a lot more attention. And so those um, connections and ties, um, I think, really carry over into a lot of the influences, cultural influences and um, ways in which, you know, tribes, especially in eastern Oklahoma, think about their heritage and where they came from. Um, and of course, in Indian Territory, Tulsa really was, you know, this urban center of um, Indian Territory. So Oklahoma um, was sort of divided into Indian Territory in the east, and then there was eventually Oklahoma Territory that was sort of in the western part. And so in Tulsa, there were a lot of sort of Tulsa's uh, sort of forefathers, as it were, who were Muscogee citizens. Um, there's a Perryman family, for instance, that I talk about a little bit in my book that was really key to um, establishing a lot of the um, institutions to set up, you know, the city of Tulsa. Um, and so really, you know, the word Tulsa itself comes from this Muscogee word, and that's really our that's really our history and our heritage. So, um, and then Santa Fe, you know, as I was saying with New Orleans, like, of course, there's this um, um, really rich Pueblo, many different Pueblo communities that com that uh, have comprised that, that history. Santa Fe itself became, you know, this capital and this place um, that these other nations were trying to use as strategic location for expansion in the West. And a lot of Native Americans, you know, from Oklahoma eventually traveled to Santa Fe for, for a few different reasons. Lynn Riggs is one of them. He traveled there in the early 20th century and joined these fascinating artist colonies and wrote about it. Um, and then more into the contemporary era, uh, folks like Lloyd Kibanu helped establish um, IAIA, the Institute for American Indian Arts. 
Julie Harjo goes there to pursue her education and gets involved in Native American organizations there. So a lot of Oklahomans, um, you know, as well as, you know, Pueblos and other communities, indigenous communities that were there really shape this um, cultural uh, legacy of, you know, sort of how Santa Fe is known as a home for indigenous arts. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Um, I think you did a fantastic job with that not very easy question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I left a lot of stuff out, but hopefully that'll be a little bit of a um, perk some folks' interest in, in reading the book. That's, that's perfect, yeah. Um, so in the book, you spend a great deal of time on each one of these cities. And I want to talk about each of them in a bit more depth in turn, but I want to go out of order from the book uh, a bit. And I actually want to start with, with Tulsa and, and with Oklahoma and work uh, our way outwards from, from there. Um, and you describe Tulsa in the book as the arts and culture capital of Oklahoma. And I'm wondering what the role of uh, Native American and indigenous culture is in this place. Who are some of the important Native artists and writers and storytellers in Tulsa? And how does their work help to kind of like uh, assert a, a Native presence, right? A Native continuity in this city? Yeah, I'm happy to speak more to that. I must start by saying my friends and colleagues in Oklahoma City may take exception to the way I discuss Tulsa. <laughs> but, um, and I should mention- I hope it's okay amazing... that I said that on the podcast. I don't want to get you in trouble or anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's an amazing new museum, the First Americans Museum in Oklahoma City that's just out of sight. Everyone should visit. But, but yeah, Tulsa, I mean, I think it comes back to this history as, you know, sort of this urban space that was a Muskogee city um, in Indian Territory long before the, the establishment of the state of Oklahoma. And there were some more particular histories about arts institutions in Tulsa that are really sometimes not talked about, but are really resting on the, um, um, the presence of these uh, um, indigenous folks who, who, you know, came here and created this city. So, for example, um, you know, we, we talk a lot about arts institutions in Tulsa as being really galvanized by the oil industry, but part of the reason all of these oil folks came here is because it was Indian Territory. Um, and some of the arts institutions or some of the um, locations in town that really serve as our sort of arts and, arts and culture infrastructure are on former Muskogee allotments. Um, and Gilcrease Museum, for example, um, you know, Thomas Gilcrease uh, had an allotment, and so that was part of the way that he was able to build this amazing collection that now serves, you know, um, this, this wonderful museum. Philbrook Museum, um, you know, had this really important arts um, exhibition, the Indian Annual, that showcase a lot of um, Indian artists over time in the 20th century. So there's a long history of, you know, just ways in which Native folks here have really contributed to and been the reason for some of that infrastructure. 
And over time, um, I mean, one of the things we talk about is though there is this really just amazing um, cultural and artistic legacy here, we don't yet, I feel, have um, a lot of venues for people to sell and share their work. And that's part of the reason why so many Oklahoma Native folks have traveled to Santa Fe and shared their work at Indian Market and um, been involved in that, you know, arts ecosystem. But, you know, now, of course, Tulsa and this area is getting a lot of attention for a lot of different reasons. Um, of course, Killers of the Flower Moon, everyone was talking about, and a lot of folks around the world are learning about um, this part of Oklahoma for the first time. Um, but folks like Joy Harjo, I mean, I just, I'm just so proud to be from the same hometown as her. <laughs> um, folks like um, Anita and Tom Fields and their son Yataka, visual artists. Um, and one other thing I want to mention that's just so cool, I mean, of, course, of course, I go into a lot of detail about Sterling Harjo and Reservation Dogs in the book, but there's really exciting indigenous food community that's getting more attention here as well. Um, that's just so cool. Lots of different indigenous food pop-ups. There's a, a native food restaurant now in the area. So I'm just seeing a lot of um, excitement and attention um, for native artists in this area. And But it's, you know, it's building on a legacy that's been here for a long time. So if that's what's going on in Oklahoma, in Tulsa, that's sort of like where, where, where we're starting. Let's talk about these connections to these other places. Let's move east first. Can you mm -hmm. describe some of the kind of bonds of community and bonds and connections of culture that exist between uh, Tulsa and Oklahoma broadly and New Orleans? Uh, can you maybe describe some examples and talk about why these connections exist? Yeah, well, this is something that Joy Harjo has um you know, written and talked about so much, which is that there is this uh, really important contribution to American music and particularly jazz on the part of indigenous folks and artists. Um, you know, a lot of the um, the performance of jazz in, in New Orleans has been influenced by different native folks, you know, around that area. Um, and so um, she, she references this a lot in, in her poems, in her performances. She talks about this a little bit in the documentary Rumble, which I really recommend folks check out if they haven't seen it before. If you see Sterling Harjo's documentary, This May Be the Last Time, um, there are a lot of folks in that documentary that talk about this coming together of African-American and indigenous music and how it's really um, continued and survived well into hymn singing traditions in Southern Oklahoma. Um, and so, and kind of as I mentioned before, I think there's just, an important way in which in people's telling about you know their memory of, of people where they came from for a lot of tribes that had their roots in the south we southeast you know they're really looking to the south um, and so New Orleans is kind of that key place of, of um, crossing over I think um, so yeah there's kind of this looking that's what's interesting about this history of Indian territory even though you know now 39 Federal tri federally recognized tribes call this place home. So many, not all, but so many have roots elsewhere and for the eastern part of the state, those, those places, those ancestral homes are really in the south. 
so if that's what's going on further east, let's let, let's look west. What is happening in Santa Fe? What are some of the connections between this place in the American Southwest and the other places in the book? How is Oklahoma shaping Santa Fe's art scene? And how are indigenous artists, uh, as you say in the book, in your words, how are they subverting the myth that Santa Fe tells about itself? Well, Santa Fe historically has been connected to Oklahoma for a few different historical reasons. Um, which, you know, are layered, um, but uh, in terms of sort of artists and the connections between writers and um, visual artists, et cetera, to Santa Fe, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, folks like Lloyd Kivanu, um and instructors like Alan Hauser, artists from Oklahoma who uh, went to Santa Fe and were instrumental in creating the Institute for American Indian Arts, and then, of course, folks, folks like George Harjo um, studied there, and lots of different um, notable students and including many with Oklahoma ties have come through IAIA. And so Santa Fe has been this really important opportunity for a lot of artists to make their living, um, to sell their work and to participate in things like Indian Market, to show at galleries, um, just opportunities that haven't necessarily been available here in Oklahoma. So at the same time, though, that it's this place of opportunity, there's a also, you know, interesting and complicated history of ways that um, those kinds of institutions were really shaped by not any of folks who had particular ideas, some stereotypical ideas about what Indian art should be. And so a lot of indigenous creative folks have um, kind of responded to or critiqued those expectations and, um, you know, challenged um, challenge some of these ideas through their work, even going all the way back to Lynn Riggs and some of his sort of poking fun at the arts folks um, that were part of the arts uh, colony that he was a you know, participant in. And then, you know, in the present day, if folks are fans of Sterling Harjo and have seen his work with the 1491s, there's a short film uh, sort of sketch called I'm an Indian 2, where they poke fun a little bit at the folks that are... Um, at Indian Market ready to buy Indian art and sort of how they imagine what Native folks should appear, how Native folks should appear. So at the same time that, that, there, that there's this important role, um, there's also uh, a critique of some of the expectations of the market and the way it's shaped up there. And then you end the book... Uh, um bring it back to Oklahoma, and then also kind of talking about Oklahoma in a national context by discussing the the pretty recent still uh, McGirt ruling by the Supreme Court. Can you explain what the McGirt ruling was briefly? And then to bring it back to, to the topic of the book itself, what it says about contemporary Oklahoma and about urban indigenous stories and histories and futures and connections? Yes, another very important and big topic. Um, and I want to just mention, if folks um, haven't heard of it before, you might be interested in um, the work of Rebecca Nagel. She has a podcast um, where she covered in a lot more depth um, the McGirt decision. Um, but in a nutshell, uh, with McGirt versus Oklahoma, the Supreme Court ruled that criminal cases involving tribal members on tribal lands here in Oklahoma, such as the Muskogee Nation um, cannot be tried in a state court, that it has to be tried in a federal court. And one of the reasons that it, that is important is that um, 
you know, up until McGirt, tribal jurisdictions in Oklahoma were not really seen as reservations in the way that other reservations around the country were seen and, you know, um, understood legally. So Oklahoma, former Indian Territory, was sort of a different, um, different part of Indian country, if you will. So with this decision, it's really had some um, after effects and been applied um, to other nations in Oklahoma too now, not just Muscogee Nation. And so really now Tulsa is legally in um, the Muscogee Reservation. We're in a place where Cherokee Nation, Muscogee Reservation, um, Osage Nation come together um, in Tulsa. And so um, that's, you know, a new sort of legal understanding with that decision. And what it really shows to me is that this fight for indigenous sovereignty is ongoing. It's a, it's a future conversation, just not just a past one. And it has real stakes and implications um, for people who live here. And so we're seeing in this area, um, Native nations really galvanizing their investment in arts and culture, especially in the film industry, um, but also healthcare, tech, energy, and infrastructure, law, um, so it's an important, evolving time, and um, and it, it you know it affects it affects our future the way we understand who we are and where we live. And then I have a couple kind of uh, wrapping up questions here, and one of them um, I always like to ask my guests to kind of flip the book around a bit. So you wrote this wonderful book, but I, I wonder if you could imagine yourself as someone reading this this wonderful book and thinking about what kind of takeaway you hope a reader would get from this book. If they're thinking back on it, if they're remembering it, you know, a year or five years or even 10 years down the line, what would you hope that one big takeaway or that one big memory or that one big theme would be? Well, I believe um, our political polarization has made us start to feel as if different areas of the country are really defined in pretty two-dimensional ways. And we see, I feel this a lot, just people thinking about Oklahoma in a certain way as like this kind of homogenous red state, red state um, you know, flyover country or something like that. Um, but I hope people take away how just rich and diverse um, and interesting Oklahoma really is and that it really should be at the center of conversations about not just native arts and culture but creativity on a world stage and that I mean there's so much more work to be done researching and learning about Oklahoma and really supporting supporting these amazing arts communities and artists and writers filmmakers etc one of the big takeaways for me was uh, not only just that Oklahoma is not, you know, merely flyover country or anything like that, but that uh, Oklahoma is also not isolated, right? That Oklahoma no. is has these very deep and intimate connections with these other places. Then it's in communication with these other communities and these other places, too. You do a really great job in the book of showing how... Uh, uh, you know, art doesn't just take place in one one space or one place. Sure. I appreciate that comment so much. And then my last question, uh, even though this book is extremely recent, came out just this year, I always like to get a preview from my guests of what they're working on next. And I know scholars and scholars always have a few different plates spinning <laughs> at the same time. So, Lindsay, what have you been working on since? Can we get a preview of maybe any, maybe any future projects you have coming up? Sure. Um, right now I'm working on a... Um, an essay collection, and um, it's sort of a revamp of a book that came out many, many years ago 
um, by an Oklahoma historian, academic at East Central University in Ada named Davis Joyce. Um, and he wrote this book called An Oklahoma I Had Never Seen Before. And it's a book of essays about alternative histories of Oklahoma. So I'm working with um, my colleague Russell Cobb on sort of an update to this. And we are calling it We Belong to the Land, Changemakers in Oklahoma. And so we have a lot of contributors who've been working in public education advocacy, arts advocacy, um, working on issues of LGBT inclusion and health. Um, just a lot of amazing people here in Oklahoma, the work that they're doing. So um, that's something I'm working on right now. And then I have um, another project that I'm working on um, that it's, it's all about summer camp in Indian country. And it's kind of a funny, <laughs> funny thing. But when I was growing up, I went to many different summer camps here in Oklahoma. And um, you know, all of these camps were in, you know, native communities, even though many of them were run by sort of these um, more sort of evangel evangelical um, church institutions. And as I've gotten older and I've talked to other folks and been, you know, out of Oklahoma, I, talked to, I, I really only now realize that my experience of camp here was very, very different from <laughs> summer camp in other parts of the country. And I discovered that summer camp here is really, I think, an interesting entry point to some of these things I continue to be interested in, which is, you know, what is the interesting mix of cultures that comes together in Indian territory? So I'm going to be looking at the histories of these summer camp sites, how they came to be established, you know, what was going on in these places, and then how, um, you know, what, what were the kinds of experiences that campers had including native campers in these um, in these places. So that's that's coming up next too. Well, both of those sound fantastic, but that uh, that summer camp project in particular sounds great. And uh, <laughs> when, when that one comes out, we'll have to we'll have to have you back on the show to, to talk about it. Yeah, I would love that. Lindsay Claire Smith is a professor of English and American Indian Studies at Oklahoma State University and is the author of the new book, Urban Homelands, Writing the Native City from Oklahoma, which is uh, newly out, just came out with the University of Nebraska Press earlier this year in 2023. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lindsay. Thank you. I enjoyed it.